This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week we've got another message from our Acts of the Apostles series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. Good morning, friends. Question for you. When you hear the word evangelism, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you hear that word? Well, I imagine that for some of you, at least, some not-so-pleasant images come to mind for you. Or, for example, maybe you think of street preachers, right? People on street corners downtown preaching aggressively with bullhorns to passer buyers, picking and choosing certain Bible verses and telling people to turn or burn, to repent and to turn to Jesus or else they will face eternal damnation in hell. Or or maybe you think of people, Christians and people of other religions as well, who go door to door. They do door to door evangelism where they ring your doorbell and then proceed to share their understanding of the gospel with you. Maybe giving you a tract, a, a little pamphlet with maybe four simple points on it about how you could become a Christian and what it means to follow Jesus. Or maybe you think instead of televangelists, people who have been on TV, TV preachers who claim to be Christian and who who preach uh, what they understand the gospel to be, inviting people to ask Jesus into their heart and things like this, when really oftentimes they're frauds. They're just hucksters who are in it for the money and not much else. Apparently, and I haven't seen it yet, but apparently there's a new movie out about uh, the televangelist Tammy Faye Baker from the 70s and 80s. Some of you might remember her. She was the wife of Jim Baker, who, of course, ended up spending time in prison for fraud and is actually out now and apparently on TV again, which is crazy. But in this movie, Jessica Chastain, I'm not sure I said that right, but I guess she won the Best Actress Award at the Oscars for this movie last week. And Uh, Speaking of the Oscars, I guess it was a pretty eventful uh, event. I'm not sure if you heard about that. But anyway, (laughs) um, this movie, you know, is getting a lot of attention. So maybe that's someone that comes to mind for you, a televangelist like uh, Tammy Faye Baker, people who are on TV often asking for money. When you hear the word evangelism, what comes to mind? for you because it's a word that sadly I I think has been hijacked by some more unfortunate expressions of it of evangelism and has made some people Christians included afraid of it and uncomfortable with it this word evangelism it's got a lot of baggage for a lot of people unfortunately And it's unfortunate, of course, because evangelism is supposed to be a good thing. It's it's something that every Christian is to engage in in some way, that God invites us to engage in in some way. And at its root, this word evangelism, which combines two Greek words into one Greek word, the words agalion, which means good news or gospel, and the word egalizo, I'm not sure I said that right, agalizo, which means to announce or to declare or to bring and to preach, it means quite literally, this word evangelism, to bring good news. To bring good news with the underlying picture being that of a herald 
or a town crier who sounds the trumpet and uh, you know conveys good news from the king to all the villagers, good news of a victory in battle or something like this. It's evangelism, and it's supposed to be a good thing, a welcomed thing, a joyful thing as we bring the good news and the story of Jesus and his kingdom and of his forgiving and restoring power to others, to people who need to hear it. Now, I say all that because this word evangelism is a word that appears at least twice throughout Acts chapter 8. And once in our passage that we're looking at here this morning in Acts 8 verses 4 through to 25, that's the theme of evangelism and of bringing the good news of Jesus to others who need to hear it. It moves front and center in the story of the early church at this point, inviting us then as well to reflect on this very topic and to consider what it might look like for us here today in the 21st century. Last week then, in our journey through the book of Acts, we looked at the story and the example of Stephen, Christianity's first martyr. That story can be found in Acts chapter 6 and 7, where Stephen challenged the Sanhedrin, who were the religious elite of his day, and he ended up being stoned to death for it. Stoned as Saul, who later became known as Paul, the Apostle Paul, looked on with approval. Which led then, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 now, to what Luke, the author of Acts, describes as a great wave of persecution sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. As as Saul made it his personal mission to destroy the church, and as Saul and others felt emboldened by the death of Stephen, leading them then on a crusade to kill and to imprison as many believers, as many Christians as they could there in Jerusalem, which was the birthplace of the church, which then forced the church, which forced Christians to scatter as a result, to flee Jerusalem and to disperse to surrounding regions like Judea and Samaria. That's the context here at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 with persecution rising intensely and Christians fleeing rapidly. All of which I'm sure had to feel like a big victory for team Satan, so to speak, right? As behind the scenes, no doubt, the the church's spiritual enemy, Satan, was hard at work doing everything that he could to take the church down, trying to stop and destroy the work and the witness of the church by any means necessary, thinking that violence and persecution would, at the very least, slow them down. And so Satan, he, he had to feel like he had won here as the church scattered and as many people left Jerusalem. He had to feel like he was winning, when in reality, he was losing big time. As in God's amazing providence, this whole thing actually turned out to be a good thing. As the good news of Jesus spread wherever the church went. Look at how Luke describes it in verse 4 of Acts chapter 8, where he says this. He says, but the believers who were scattered through Judea and Samaria, they preached the good news and the story about Jesus wherever they went, as Satan's plan backfired on him and as God took what the enemy meant for evil and turned it around for good instead. Which is just something that God does, isn't it? Where in his divine providence, he takes the the pain and the brokenness and even the destruction that the enemy was trying to use to take us down and he turns it around for our good 
instead, re- redeeming it and using it to accomplish his perfect, uh, perfect plan and, div- and divine purposes in our world and in our lives. It's what God does. He takes what the enemy meant for evil and he uses it for good and for his purposes and instead, just as he did here in the book of Acts, as the church scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Because remember now that the mission of the church in Acts, right? Remember what Jesus said to his disciples way back at the beginning of the book of Acts about his plan and his purpose for the church. Where in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said this to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which is something that happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And you will be my witnesses, Jesus says, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem as they had been exclusively up until this point, but also, listen, throughout Judea and in Samaria, where Luke says that they are now thanks to this persecution that forced them to scatter, as well as to the ends of the earth, Jesus says, as they will eventually go, as we'll see later on in the book of Acts. This was always God's plan for the church in Acts. Not necessarily that they'd be killed or persecuted for their faith as God is not the author of evil and of violence and of persecution and things like this, but that in the face of that kind of evil and violence, his plan and his purposes would still move forward because that's what God does, isn't it? He takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good according to his divine protection, or, or his divine providence, I should say, and plan. Isn't that an encouraging thought for us to consider here today? I wonder where you need to be reminded of this truth in your life right now. Where, where are you maybe feeling a bit beaten up and torn down, broken, destroyed even, like, like the enemy is winning in your life? Where, where are you feeling perhaps a little bit scattered <laughs> and all over the place in your life these days? Listen, God can redeem anything. God can redeem anything. And as you look to him, he can and he will take what the enemy meant for evil in your life and he will turn it for good. He will use it for his divine purposes. I promise you, He will, because it's what God does. God is our great redeemer. He specializes in this. What the enemy means for evil in our life, God will always turn around and use it for good. Doesn't mean that what we're going through is always okay or part of God's plan, but that God can take what we're going through and use it according to his plan and his purposes for our life. It's an amazing truth that we see here in Acts chapter Well, reading on now, let's look then at what God, our great Redeemer, does here in the rest of Acts chapter 8. We're in verse 5. We read this. Philip, for example, Luke says. We were actually introduced to Philip back in Acts 6 along with Stephen. He was one of the seven Greek believers who were appointed to the leadership group of uh, the food distribution program. Philip, he went where? To the city of Samaria, Luke says, or more, like, more likely uh, a city in Samaria. And he told the people there about the Messiah. He, he told the story of Jesus to the Samaritans there, bearing witness 
to Jesus. Verse 6, the crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and to see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. Can you imagine? And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city as God used Philip to do many miraculous things. In the name of Jesus, as he proclaimed the good news of Jesus and the story of Jesus to the people of Samaria. Now, it's impossible here, I think, to overstate just how big of a deal and how much courage it took Philip, a Jewish Christian, to go and to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to Samaritans of all people. As historically, the Jewish people actually hated the Samaritans. They, they thought of the Samaritans as being half-breed heretics, people who were kind of Jewish. They were descendants of Jacob, but they came from a totally different culture and a totally different background and history, and they worshipped differently. They had their own temple, and they read a slightly version of the Torah, and the Jewish people felt like the Samaritans had perverted the faith. They were just different in a whole bunch of ways, and the Jews hated the Samaritans for it. They saw them as apostates heretics who the Jewish people were to avoid at all costs. But here now is Philip. Philip is no longer enslaved by the baggage and the hatred that he grew up with towards the Samaritans. He's there now preaching the gospel, preaching the good news of Jesus to and performing miracles amongst these Samaritans instead, the people that he had been told his whole life to hate. It signals, I think, a very significant shift that happens in our hearts as the gospel takes hold of us. Whereas we become more and more aware of and more moved by the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus towards us, people who were on the outside looking in, excluded from a life of faith and a life with God because of our sin, when we see that, we can't help but be, uh, be moved by it and to extend that same love and that same grace to others, especially people who we may be inclined to hate or to judge, or to hold prejudices against for whatever the, the reason may be. Because we know that at the end of the day, listen, we know that Jesus is for everybody. Jesus is for everybody. And the gospel, which is the good news and the story of Jesus, it's for everybody too. And nobody is to be excluded. Nobody is to miss out. And, and Philip clearly knew this as he knew and had been so changed by the love and the grace of Jesus that in response he had to take the message of Jesus to a people, to Samaritans, who he had been taught to hate his whole life. It's amazing, isn't it? And it makes me wonder actually why it is that Christians today, sadly, are known at times for hating on and judging and holding prejudices against certain groups of people Today, instead of loving them and accepting them the same way that God and Christ has loved and accepted us. It doesn't quite add up that brand of Christianity, does it? Well, moving on, look with me now at verse 9. After hearing a little bit about Philip, we're introduced to another interesting character here as well. Verse 9, a man named Simon had been a sorcerer there. For many years, as magic and sorcery, which is strongly condemned by God in the Old Testament, it was a very common thing 
in the ancient world. And it's something that Satan often used to try to discredit the power of God and to appear as more powerful than God to other people. Like think, for example, of Pharaoh's magicians in Egypt versus Moses in the book of Exodus, if you know that story. That's the kind of magic and sorcery that we're talking about here. It's demonic, actually. It's, it's just like witchcraft here today and things like this. It's evil. It's from the pit of hell. But this sorcerer, Simon, he had been performing magic there for years, Luke says, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Just like the televangelist types on TV that we're talking about earlier sometimes do as well. Verse 10, everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God, which is a very scary thing to say about a human being that's not Jesus, essentially declaring Simon to be a deity of some kind, which is very scary. It shows just how deceived these people were. Verse 11 now, they listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. And he had likely profited financially from them as well. Or maybe he healed people for money or he cursed people for money or he casted spells and things like this for money. Astounding people for years, Luke says, with his demonic magic. Making Simon a very influential person in this city. Okay, that's a bit about Simon the sorcerer. But look now at what happens next in verse 12. But now the people believed Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Instead, as Philip boasted in Christ instead of himself like Simon did, Simon boasted um, in himself. Philip boasted in Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized as they surrendered their lives to Jesus and demonstrated that in the waters of baptism. And then verse 13, then apparently Simon believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and the great miracles that Philip performed as Simon was drawn into the story of Jesus because he was fascinated and amazed by all the miracles, wanting to perform those miracles himself because he was a sorcerer and a magician. It's what in all likelihood was behind Simon's supposed conversion and baptism, where out of a desire to get in on the miracles and the signs and wonders that he saw Philip performing, uh, he prayed a prayer, right? He jumped through the hoops. He got dunked in the water and he did all the things that he saw others doing. But in all likelihood, he didn't actually place his faith in Christ to save him. But he just did what he thought he had to do in order to be like Philip and in order to be able to experience the miraculous as Philip had. He he saw it probably just like another incantation of his that he could add to the list. We'll see this a little bit later on in this story, in this passage. Uh, when Peter confronts him. But uh, verse 14 now. When the apostles in Jerusalem, who had all stayed in Jerusalem, by the way, uh, they hadn't scattered, when they heard that the people in Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John. Peter, of course, being the de facto leader of the apostles, and John, uh, who often accompanied 
Peter. And interestingly, who is also the one in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 9 who wanted to call down fire from heaven on a certain Samaritan city, if you know that story. Showing us again how Jesus changes hearts and melts away the hate when we come in contact with his love and his mercy and his grace was just pretty cool. But the apostles, they sent in the big guns here. They sent in Peter and John. And as soon as they arrived, Luke says in verse 15, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is kind of confusing. I'll talk more about that in a second. Verse 17, first, then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what's going on here with all of this? Because I, I don't know about you, but, but I thought that the Bible taught that every Christian already had the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within, the, within you, then you're not actually a Christian, right? Like the Apostle Paul basically says just that in Romans 8 verse 9 and implies it pretty strongly in other places as well. And so this idea that you could become a Christian, as the Samaritans did, but not receive uh, the Holy Spirit until some time later, it's hard to make sense of. And it doesn't really fit within what the Bible teaches elsewhere. So how do we make sense of this story? How does it fit? Well, I'm not going to be able to answer that fully as there's lots of debate and theories out there about what uh, this passage means with some saying, for example, that it's just a one-off event, an exception given the uniqueness of the situation and the moment and the life and history of the church that these Samaritans didn't receive the Holy Spirit immediately when they came to faith, while others will say actually that this is how it works all the time for everybody. That first you come to faith in Christ and then are baptized in water in the name of Jesus. But then sometime later, you need to also be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a separate second event. That's what some Pentecostal denominations actually teach. It can be a very confusing story to make sense of. So here's how I uh, try to make some sense of this. Here's how I understand this story. It's either a one-off event an exception in the story of the early church, as I just talked about, or the Holy Spirit did actually indwell these Samaritan Christians when they came to faith, as he does for every Christian, but they had yet to personally experience the reality of and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in their lives, as the apostles had. And so they needed to be prayed over by the apostles in order to take their experience with the Spirit of God, with the presence of God, to the next level so to speak, which honestly was my experience as a young Christian, not being prayed over by the apostles, that would have been pretty cool, but in coming to Christ as a teenager and doing my best to follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, while not really personally experiencing the reality and the power of the Spirit in my life until I attended a certain youth conference in Toronto a year or so into my life as a Christian where God at this youth conference, he met me in a powerful way. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that I had never been filled before. And I experienced God in a way that I had never experienced God before. And it changed my life. And it changed the way that I experienced God in my daily life. It gave me a connection to the Holy Spirit that I didn't really have or know up until that moment. A, a connection that I actually still have today, some 25 years later. Or whatever. 
And honestly, I don't entirely know how to make sense of it all theologically. I just know that some people, some Christians who already have the Spirit of God living within them, because when you come to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you. He lives within you. Every Christian has the Spirit of God with, within them. Uh, some Christians, though, they don't seem to know it. And there is just something powerful that happens in us and to us when we lay hands on one another in prayer and when we invite the Holy Spirit to fill us with his life and his power as the apostles did here in Acts chapter 8. It's not weird. It's not magic. It's just something that God seems to do as we seek and pray for the Spirit to fill us together so that we could experience the power and the reality of the presence of Jesus by his Spirit in our lives, which as a side note, if you want to experience that, if you've yet to experience that, you're a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, but you've not really experienced the, the power of the Spirit in your life, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to lay hands on you in a gentle and pastoral way and pray for you and ask God by His Spirit to fill you with His life and His love so that you can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's one of my greatest joys in ministry is praying for people to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I remember actually years ago while running an Alpha course in person, praying over a brand new Christian friend of mine. He was a big burly fireman, actually a big tough guy. And we all in the group, there was probably about 15 or 20 of us. We all surrounded him. He was sitting in a chair and we laid hands on him and we prayed for him and we invited the Holy Spirit to come and to fill him with his life and his love and his power because he was already a Christian. He had the Holy Spirit living within him. We just wanted him to become more aware of the Spirit of God uh, that was at work in his life already. And as we did that, as we prayed for him to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, something special happened in that moment as he was awakened in a deeper way to the presence of the Spirit. And he began to, to cry. He, this big fireman began to just weep as he experienced the love and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. It was an amazing moment in his spiritual journey. Maybe you need a moment like that yourself. I'd love to pray with you if you do. Please let me know. And seriously, I'd love to do that with you. All right, back to our story. Look at how Simon the sorcerer uh, responded to all of the things that was going on, to the, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon people around him. Where in verse 18, we read this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them, the apostles, money to buy this power. Yikes. Verse 19, let me have this too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit as well. Because this is what Simon knows, right? People likely pay him for his magic. So he's like, I'll pay Peter and I'll get the Holy Spirit too. That's how all this works, he thinks. But clearly he doesn't get it. Verse 20 now, but Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. Like Simon, you don't get it right this isn't how it works you can't buy or sell the holy spirit like one of your spells but he is a gift actually of god's grace to every believer he's the third member of the holy trinity the spirit of jesus who indwells every christian and empowers us to follow him you can't buy the holy spirit that's what peter is saying verse 21 
You can have no part in this, Peter says, for your heart is not right with God. Like clearly your, your conversion was not sincere. You're just in it for the miracles or something else, for the money. Repent, Peter says, of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. And I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and held captive by sin. Or in other words, Peter rebukes Simon here, saying, stop with the magic and stop with the platform seeking and stop with the religious syncretism as Simon was clearly attempting to combine sorcery with Christianity, just as some people, by the way, today attempt to combine things like New Age philosophies and practices and other things with Christianity as well. Peter says, stop with all of that and repent, turn away from it instead so that maybe you can escape judgment. It's amazing. His words, harsh words to Simon. And now look at how Simon responded in verse 24. He says, pray to the Lord for me. Not show me how to pray or help me pray to the Lord, but show, pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things won't happen to me. Or in other words, I, I feel kind of bad about what you're saying. And I don't want to get in trouble with God. I don't want to come under his judgment, but I don't really know how to pray for myself. I don't really know how to ask for forgiveness myself. So would you pray for me instead? He still doesn't get it, does he? He feels bad, but he's not actually repentant. He's not actually sincere in his desire to turn away from his sin and to follow Jesus instead. He just didn't want to get in trouble with God. He, he just didn't want these terrible things that Peter had talked about happening to him. Which honestly is how a lot of people approach uh, faith in God today, isn't it? Where instead of actual repentance and a turning away from sin and our own efforts to please God and to live a meaningful life, we just want to avoid getting into trouble with God, or maybe we want to get into heaven when we die and not go to hell, or maybe we want God to bless us with lots of material things in our life. And so we repent out of a desire to avoid bad things happening to us. But guys, that is not really a sincere kind of faith, is it? It's not saving faith. I said, you know what saving faith requires? It requires repentance where we see our sin for what it is and we choose to turn away from it while placing our faith in Jesus and what he's already accomplished for us on the cross to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, to change us from the inside out. That is saving faith. But Simon somehow missed this. Even though he'd been following Philip around for days and had spent time now with Peter and John and saw the Holy Spirit do all these incredible miracles, he missed it. And guess what? Sometimes we, maybe you, can miss it too if we're not careful. You can go to church your whole life and miss it. You can call yourself a Christian your whole life and miss it. You can be a good person and miss it, just as Simon missed it here which I think really makes this story in Acts chapter 8 about Simon a very sober warning for all of us, isn't it? As it shows us that God's not interested in our half-baked commitments. He wants 100%. He wants us to be all in in our pursuit of him, not pursuing magic or miracles or wealth or anything else, but him above the rest. Well, the story here ends now in verse 25 with these words, 
from Luke. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, which is evangelism. This is where our word evangelism appears here in the Greek, okay? After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord and talking, sharing the story of Jesus with others in Samaria, Peter and John returned from Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. To, to share the story of Jesus with others after having seen what, it, even I should say, after seeing what had happened to Simon the sorcerer in this uh, village and, and as he didn't get it. They, they kept going. They didn't let that discourage them. They kept telling others. They kept sharing the good news of Jesus and of his saving power with others, with Samaritans, people who in their previous life they had been taught to hate. It's an amazing story, isn't it? A story with a, a ton of different angles to it and things to reflect on, whether we're talking about how God takes what the enemy intended for evil and turns it around to use it for good, or how Jesus changes our hearts and melts our hate and prejudices towards other people as we become more aware of the, the grace and the love of Jesus in our lives, or, or how the Holy Spirit fills us with his life and his love, allowing us to experience him in a very personal and powerful way, or about saving faith and the difference between insincere faith and sincere faith in Christ as we just talked about with Simon. There's so much in this story to chew on and to reflect on, but there is a thread, one thread that runs through it all. And you know what that thread is? It's what we talked about earlier. It's evangelism and it's God's heart for the other and for people who don't know him yet. That's ultimately what the story is all about. It's about how God used the church in the midst of some really difficult circumstances as this wave of persecution crashed over the church and caused the church to scatter. As God used that in order to grow the church's reach and to reach other people, people who were far from him with the story of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that is God's heart, right? God's heart is for the other. God's heart is for people who don't know him yet. God's heart is for people who are on the outside and who are hurting and in need of hope and healing in, in Christ. And while the, the word evangelism might be intimidating for us and might have some baggage for us that we need to work through, we too, like Philip, are called to go to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and to tell the story of hope and the story of life and the story of love and grace and ultimately the story of Jesus to a world and to friends and to family, to people that we know in our lives who are so in desperate need to hear it. It's to have, for example, spiritual conversations around a table with food on it perhaps, with friends as we hang out with them about what really matters most in life. And it's to invite people, friends who we know who are far from God, to, to church with us. So that together as a community of faith, we can hopefully help them take their next step of faith. And it's to do things like invite people to Alpha, which is an online course now about Christianity for new or newer believers, uh, not yet believers. Uh, we just started this actually last week at the gathering online. It was it started this past Thursday night. It's not too late to join. You can invite people to join in on that. Or, or, or ultimately, it's to pray. To pray intentionally by name for one or two or three people in your lives who don't know Jesus yet, that their hearts would be turned towards him. Evangelism doesn't have to be this aggressive, door-to-door, -door, street preacher type of thing, but it does have to be intentional. 
because it doesn't just happen by accident. That's the thread of this story. And that's the invitation of God to us, the church today. It's to take evangelism seriously, even in the midst of really difficult times in our life, challenging circumstances, to be able to share the story of Jesus with others because our world so desperately needs to hear that story. So I wonder, who might God be calling you to be a Philip to these days? And how might God want to use your story, struggles and all, in order to point people towards his story, just as he did here with Philip and the early church? That's our invitation, is to be a Philip to a world who so desperately needs more Philips. Let me pray for us. Jesus, that's our desire. We want to be used by you to bring hope and healing and wholeness to a world who so desperately needs it. We recognize that there are so many hurting people around us, people who don't know who or what to turn to to find hope and forgiveness and, and healing. But we know that you are the answer, that you are the one that they are looking for. Give us the courage that we need um, to speak boldly of the story of Christ, the story of Jesus, your story, to share your story with the hurting world. Pray that you'd give us names, give us uh, faces that we can be praying for each and every day, that they might come to faith in you, that you might even use us to encourage them to take a step towards you. Make us Phillips, we pray. Help us to take your amazing story, the amazing gospel, the gospel of forgiveness and healing and wholeness because of what you've done on the cross for us and to share that with the world in need. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast. <laughs>